Hello, welcome to another Three Old Hacks podcast. I'm Mihir Bose uh, in my loft in Shepherd's Bush, looking at an overcast sky, but with two Union Jacks fluttering in the breeze. Um, they both, of course, represent our Hindu Prime Minister, but our Muslim Scottish First Minister would probably want the flower of Scotland. Joining me are two great friends and even greater journalists, David Smith, economic editor of the Sunday Times, and Nigel Dudley, political commentator. I take it, David and Nigel, the Union Jack is flying majestically in your part of the world? Uh, uh, David here. No, I, I, uh, I can say uh, categorically it's not, because um, I'm, uh, I'm in West Wales, looking over a misty sea, and uh, there's no Union Jacks in sight here. A few Welsh dragons, uh, but uh, I think that reflects the success of the Welsh football team. <laughs> and I, I would be tempted to have a European Union uh, flag in my garden, but I do fear that in the wilds of Suffolk, where uh, they have distinct views about the European Union, which are not necessarily <laughs> my own, they would probably burn down my house. So I have no flags at all. But I, I do think there was a wonderful little piece in the Times today, me here, which uh, you 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 mentioned the uh, the fact that we have a Muslim leader in Scotland and a Hindu leader in England, and uh, th someone was quoted as saying, it, "These two uh, men are perfect to organise the partition of Great Britain." And <laughs> <laughs> um, well. Let me begin with a response from one of our devoted listeners and a dear friend, Susanna Magendy. She lives in Fulham and has taken me to task for saying that um, Fulham Football Club supporters have moved away from the area. Uh, Susanna in her WhatsApp says she was talking to three lots of neighbours who go to the matches with their kids and they meet up with their friends. I'm sure that happens, Susanna. But my experience of reporting football for half a century is that the old connection of work in the factory, go to the pub, go to the stadium and then back home for tea prepared by the missus has gone. Most fans travel long distances. The statue of the great Johnny Haynes, the first £100-a-week footballer, which is outside the ground at Fulham, is, I think, a stranger to most people who, who live in Fulham. Um, so we shall have to disagree. However, I hope we will not disagree, and certainly I hope David and Nigel will not disagree with what we have seen about the coverage in the last few weeks about this case brought against the actress Gunnith Paltrow by a man who claims she injured him in a skiing accident in Utah some years ago, which has had a catastrophic effect on his life, and uh, Gwyneth has filed a countersuit. Now, uh, she doesn't act much now, and I've never seen her in a movie. I realize this is one of those real-life American courtroom dramas, as TV cameras are allowed in there. But I think it's absurd that on the day that the um, Scottish National Party elected Hamza Yusuf, a historic moment, as we discussed with the political party having its first Muslim leader, it was this court case that was considered more important by Sky News. Um, why this matters is we have not covered well uh, what's been happening in France, what's been happening in India, where Rahul Gandhi, the um, opposition leader, has lost his parliamentary seat because he's lost a libel action and received a jail sentence, or what's been happening in Israel. Um, I must say, with regard to the French developments. The historian George Trevelyan got it very right when he said the French monarchs would have still kept their heads had the French monarchs and the aristocracy played cricket with their working classes as the British did. Now, you might not agree with that, David and Nigel, but I'm sure you will find um, our American fixation perverse. Wouldn't you say that, David? I think um, um, here on your first point, going back uh, to where you started, uh, I think if um, 
if Fulham doesn't have supporters who live in Fulham, I don't know where they get supporters from. But uh, anyway, I and I, I'm old enough to remember when um, Chelsea um, were described as a musical joke. But um, that was when musicals <laughs> still existed. But uh, but anyway, um, on your point, I mean, I, I'm surprised that you uh, have never seen uh, Gwyneth in a film because I was uh, I was watching her in a film just the uh, just the other evening, Shakespeare in Love, in which uh, she plays um, uh, a prominent part and. Um, the plot is quite complicated, but um, she has to pretend to be a, a man for the purposes of uh, Tudor theatre, I think, because they didn't allow women on stage. But, uh, but anyway, it's a very good film. Uh, I think uh, it's just personality, isn't it? I mean, the, the puzzle about this case for me is, um, is why, when she's still um, worth quite a lot of money, uh, not so much from, uh, from film acting anymore, but from um, her other businesses, uh, why she chose to um, contest it, because I don't think this uh, chap was looking for a huge amount in uh, in damages, but um, she thought that this was a hill worth uh, worth dying on, and uh, maybe she will die on it. But uh, I don't, I, I wouldn't think that we've underplayed some of the other things you uh, mentioned. I think there's been plenty of coverage of the uh, the riots in France, quite a lot of the protests in Israel, and other things. Uh, but um, but it's personality, it's showbiz, isn't it? That's why uh, Gwyneth Paltrow in court has been so interesting. And um, I don't actually mind it too much. I don't know what you think, Nigel. Well, I rather agree with you. I don't mind it too much. I do think that particularly on some of the BBC radio news programmes, the, the coverage of... Uh, what, what's been happening in Israel, the coverage of what's been happening in India has been pretty good and pretty intense. But I, I think what, what you have here is the ultimate drama in that think of how many books, films, plays down the years have been about court cases uh, and also involving celebrities. Now, we started, this isn't the first time we've seen this. Remember how many hours we all spent watching the O.J. Simpson <laughs> murder trial many years back? And then there was the, the nanny, Louise Woodward, who was accused, uh, British nanny, accused of uh, murdering her uh, charge in, in, in the United States. And because you have this drama of the court case, you have the climax of the result, it, it, and you have the celebrity and the people you don't even have to really bother about introducing. Um, I'm not at all surprised that this gets headlines. I'm not at all surprised that we're slightly mesmerised. The way it comes across, we're not quite certain whether it's actual a factual event or a fictional event, and it <laughs> just sort of all blurs together. One final point on... A Fulham football club, though, before I return you to me here for his views on these matters. Uh, I used to go and watch Fulham when I lived in Putney, so I was travelling a little bit, with uh, that former politician and celebrity, still, I suspect, David Meller. And these were the days before he became famous enough that he had to support Chelsea rather than Fulham. <laughs> well, um, we might have to disagree on this, but... Um... And, of course, I'll have to remind uh, our listeners that, uh, or David will remind them, that I did say Boris Johnson will lead the Tory party into the next general election. But is he finished, I wonder, though the Daily Mail and the Telegraph are saying so, following his evidence to the parliamentary inquiry. Uh, watching the evidence he gave, I was struck by how serious it was. There was no jokes, and he had even combed his hair. Uh, what concerns me... That is, his supporters have dubbed the inquiry as a kangaroo court. He has not said he will accept the 
verdict, which sounds a bit like Trump refusing to accept his election defeat. Now, our system with no written constitution is based on very curious practices. It has always struck me watching um, Parliament uh, to see the MPs have to stand up and down. Good exercise, of course, in the hope of catching the Speaker's eye. And and I remember, and I know David and Nigel, you're much younger than me, you may not, that John Profumo resigned for lying to Parliament. Uh, are these traditions, Nigel, under threat as a result of what Johnson is doing? Well, I think they're always under threat all, all the time. And, uh, I, I, and they... In some cases, they do have to evolve and change to uh, meet modern times and meet modern traditions. But I think the uh, absurdity of the Johnsonian allegations is completely ridiculous. Firstly, there is a Tory majority on, on this uh, body. And secondly, there is uh, this has to be approved or otherwise by the uh, whole House of Commons. So... Uh, and the idea that he's having his livelihood taken away from him, which I, I think I heard one of his defenders say, is completely absurd. How many hundreds of thousands of pounds is he earning from outside Parliament, apart from anything else? Um, I, I would also, the, next, the other point I would make is that this is a man who, you know, we're dancing on the head of a pin here, was whether he knowingly or unknowingly uh, misled the House of Commons. I mean, it's accepted that he misled the House of Commons by everyone now, um, but... What what it means is, is this going to go down? What are the people in the dog and duck saying? Ah, they're concerned about the fact that Johnson and his people in Downing Street parted while they were being intimidated and bullied by the police. That's what they will take away from this. And the final point I would just make very quickly is to say that uh, I, I think that in a case, it becomes irrelevant about his career because Sunak has not imploded. He has, whether you agree with what he's doing or not, given the impression that he is governing efficiently. And I think as we get closer to the general election, the pressure not to rebel uh, uh, will be very considerable. So I suspect that uh, uh, this is becoming less relevant than it did. Do, do you agree with that, David? Yes, I think I do, Nigel. But And, I, and I, I'm also... Um intrigued by your mention of the dog and duck i mean i uh, i've never yet, yet found a pub called the dog and duck but we always <laughs> we always use it in these um, in these um, political discussions so if there's one in fulham i'm happy to go there and your your old friend david meller um, of course um, the one story he never denied uh, which was invented by max clifford was was that he um, he wore a chelsea shirt when in bed and i uh, i think he was quite proud of that one uh, even though it was Totally fictitious, but I think uh, it's all part of the same uh, the same personality story. I mean, we you know we've um, we've just uh, as we're recording this, you know, it's not long after the um, the death of uh, Paul O'Grady has led the uh, the news bulletins, and uh, and that's a kind of personality story. Um, even if uh, Dominic Raab called him Paul Grayson, and uh, I think the um, so these are, and uh, you know we had a we had a, a bizarre period where. The lead story on the um, BBC News was all about uh, Gary Lineker uh, returning to broadcasting, um, having missed a week of Match of the Day. So, and I think Boris Johnson is part of that same personality um, bias that we, we, you know, that uh, news organisations have. That uh, that what what Boris does is, uh, however bad and however reprehensible, um, which often it is, is is um, is box office. It's news news, uh, and as, as Nigel says. You know, he um, getting to his. I think the I think the the thing that the the, the committee, the privilege committee, has it in its favour is that um, it can't actually prove it was intentional. It's not 
too difficult to say that he was reckless, which is the other the other test because Boris is often reckless. And so, um, but I, I think it's part of the same phenomenon that you started off with me here. David, you've made a very good point about how the media covers this. Uh, let's go to a topic which we all covered. And when we were actually working together back in the days of Financial Weekly, if you recall, that's when Big Bang took place. Uh, we were all in the same newsroom. And of course, you made your famous comment that um, um, you could, by reading a feature, know whether it was a one phone call feature, whether the writer had made more than one phone call. And this is relevant because um, as a result of Big Bang, all the doors opened up. I remember when I went for my first mortgage, the uh, financial advisor said, go to Halifax, make a deposit, wait for a few months to prove you're a good depositor, then go and ask for a mortgage. Uh, you, the financial advisor also later advised Caroline uh, not to marry me, saying I was a womanizer. Fortunately, <laughs> How he worked this out on the basis of me opening a Halifax account, I don't know. Fortunately, Caroline didn't listen to this advice. But we have seen in the last um, uh, week or so uh, another banking crisis, Credit Suisse, rescued by the Swiss government, a bank in Silicon Valley, rescued by my own HSBC, Deutsche Bank, in trouble. So, David, uh, have we got this all wrong? The banking crisis of 2008 was supposed to have settled all this, you know, uh, drawn um, what was it um, Chinese walls or whatever, the Chinese walls collapsed or, or the banking regulations not worked, or maybe looking back, we were too enthusiastic for Big Bang? Yeah, I, I think they're, they're slightly slightly different things. You know, if, if you look back to um, the um, financial crisis, 2008-9, it, it's, you know, for, for us in the UK, it began with Northern Rock and the, uh, the run on Northern Rock in September 2007, and that was the first run on a British bank since the 1860s. So it was quite a quite a big deal. But what happened with uh, with Northern Rock was that um, its business model was uh, was very uh, vulnerable because you know most building societies, and I don't know whether the um, the Halifax when you got your first mortgage was still a building society or become a bank by then. But uh, they most building societies tend to operate on the basis that they got deposits in from savers and lent those out in the form of mortgages to borrowers. And the, the two things sort of squared off quite nicely. What Northern Rock did was borrow extensively. Most of its borrowing was from the wholesale banking markets, wholesale money markets. And when those, uh, when those froze in uh, 2007, it was in trouble. And I think you see parallels with the, the models of the Silicon Valley Bank, which um, you know, put all, got lots of deposits, but put them in government bonds, US government bonds, and because interest rates went up, most banks, I should say, benefit from higher interest rates, their margins increase, and most banks have had a windfall from higher interest rates. In the case of Silicon Valley Bank, it did not because it had got those, those, those investments in government bonds set against its deposits. And when interest rates went up, the value of those government bonds went down. And so it had a, it had a gap there. Credit Suisse has been, had been vulnerable for quite a long time. I don't think this is the same kind of crisis that we had in um, in 2008 i think it's uh, i think the banks are in general much safer and better capitalized but but banking of course is a uh, is a confidence business if people lose confidence and you get the combination of very sharp falls in bank share prices and depositors wanting to get their money out then then you've got a crisis on your hands i don't think it need happen this time there's no logical reason why it should happen but these things aren't always logical so um, so I think it's um, there, there. There are risks there, uh, there, and there are often risks that we didn't, that we don't know about. You know, some 
pockets of the system are more vulnerable than we, we thought they were. I mean, nobody knew back in the autumn after Kwasi Kwarteng's, um, what was it, Kami Kwasi budget, uh, nobody, nobody knew that uh, this would lead to real problems for pension funds through, through the products they were investing in. So, so I think we've still got vulnerabilities we probably don't know about, but I, I think it would be wrong and illogical to have the same kind of crisis we had in 2008-9. I do agree with you on what you're, what you're saying, which is, is obviously totally accurate. But what I think is the case is that whenever we have a financial crisis, we take measures to deal with that financial crisis. Um, uh, but we have no idea what the next financial crisis is going to be, as you've just intimated. It comes from somewhere we don't expect. And it's that sort of thing which can destroy confidence. And if we look back historically, capitalism, communism, any form of government has been riven by uh, financial crisis periodically, and they're all, by and large, unrelated to the previous one. So there's going to be another one in as we've had this year, there'll be another one in another five years' time. And no one can actually say that the, that any financial system is based on uh, insecurity and the likelihood of a collapse, because it will bring about precisely that collapse you're trying to avoid. Now, I mean, I, I did do a little bit of homework on this. Uh, there is a former colleague of ours called Alex Murray, who went off to great things on the Sunday Telegraph and is now, I think, uh, uh, living in happy retirement. He wrote a book in 1985 called Great Financial Crises, and he started with the Amenhotep III, who ruined Egypt in the 15th century BC. So it's been going strong since then. And since he published his book in the 1980s, we've had the Indian, Swedish, Finnish, crises, Black Wednesday, the Asian-Russian crisis, Argentina's Great Depression, the uh, European sovereign debt crisis, the Greek crisis, the Venezuela crisis, uh, the stock market crash. I mean, th these are sorts of things which are going to be happening. They're going to be with us always. And we shouldn't pretend that we can forecast them, I think. And Nigel, you would agree with the Mary Poppins scenario where the little boy started a run on the banks by saying, give me back my money. Uh, yes, I would. And, I, and we should mention here that Nigel is a former banking correspondent, so he's not, he's not speaking off the top of his head, head here. <laughs> he, has, uh, he has skin in the game, as it were. But uh, no, I think, um, and, and uh, well done for mentioning Egypt, because I think Egypt was the, um, was the place where the idea of um, of banks not having, um, you know, if everybody wanted their money out at the same time, there's a problem. And I think that's where that, that started. The fractional reserve banking in one form or another started, I think, in, in ancient times and uh, has, has persisted. But um, I, um, um, no, I, th I think it is true. I know, you know, Mary Poppins is... Um, is another of my favourite films, not starring Gwyneth Paltrow, by the way, but uh, the the bank run is uh, is one of the best bits in that, and I think they all end up floating in the air or something. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, it's uh, you, you you make a good point that if everybody wants their money at the same time, a bank is in trouble, and um, and that's what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. That uh, people got wise to the problems, uh, they knew that the um, they were only protection scheme only covered them to two hundred fifty thousand dollars. A lot of those. Um, a lot of the Silicon Valley companies, the tech firms, had more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars on deposit, so um, they wanted to um, 
to keep their money safe. And that's why we had the run on it. So, uh, so yes, that was a, a good example of a, of a bank run. David, you raise an interesting prospect of Swiss bankers floating in the air. But I must say, as a result of the 2008 um, changes that you spoke about, um, if you now go to your bank, as I discovered recently, um, you can't, as a as a customer, um, open a, a business account. That has to be done separately somewhere else. Um, talk, talking of opening accounts, um, a slightly different uh, theme. We are recording this before um, Easter comes along. Long, but Easter is coming. Easter eggs will be consumed. And uh, this has made um, Nigel very concerned about what Henry Dimbleby said about um, obesity. I must say that um, uh, I've always had a problem with obesity. And when I was at school, I was called fatso. Um, and uh, of course, you can't see David, but David is the only one of the three of us whose BMI has never been in doubt. He looks like he's fit enough even now to play for his beloved Wolves. Nigel, um, are you going to have Easter eggs and tell us why you got so concerned about Henry Dimbleby and um, what he said about obesity? Well, he was uh, for years an advisor to uh, the government on this subject, and he has uh, he has resigned from this because he is deeply unhappy about government policies. And I, I've, I've for a number of years, I, I think what has made the biggest change in my lifestyle and has enabled me to lose quite a lot of weight is actually going back to ingredients and making the food myself. I, I mean, we. we don't have any we don't buy any bread anymore i make a couple of loaves a week it takes virtually no time at all um and it, it does make a big difference but you see supermarkets want us to buy the products because they they control the ingredients and the markup they make on them is a lot bigger i believe that if you buy ingredients you can control what's going in particularly say something like salt which is poured in quite extensively into uh, all all the sorts of food and the products that that we buy because it adds taste to otherwise grotty stuff which the um, producers want to put in and all this stuff we now see about uh the health warnings, the health symbols on it are absolute nonsense. I don't know anyway. Do, do, do either of you look at the, uh, uh, at the health symbols on, on any of the food you buy? The, the traffic lights, you mean, uh, the, uh, yeah. whether it's um, green, uh, amber or red. No, no I, I, I'm afraid I don't. And that, I don't think that's made much difference. I, um, it's interesting, though. This is, a, this is a, an ideal time for... Um, for people to be doing what you what you're doing, uh, Nigel, because um, I can tell you that um, food price inflation. I've got a fascinating fact here: food price inflation is currently running at eighteen point three percent. So food prices are eighteen point three percent higher than they were a year ago. And the fascinating fact is that that's more um, than the rising prices over the past year is more than the cumulative increase over the previous eleven years and four months. So uh, having had no food price inflation, the supermarkets keeping prices low which hence you know people buying the things that you say uh, they shouldn't really be buying uh, now there's an incentive to go to uh, to the ingredients and um, to um, uh, you know to go back to to basics to go back to whole wholesome foods again um, Nigel uh, uh, interesting enough on, on the theme of Easter eggs I, I, I was reading um, the book by um, the book Bourneville by Jonathan Coe recently and uh, one of the uh, sub themes about it is is the uh, the long battle between um, British chocolate, chocolate makers, um, uh, particularly Cadbury's, and the EU over whether um, British chocolate could be uh, can be described as chocolate, 
because uh, Nigel, I think you know about this. Uh, mm. uh, because uh, and the, the thing was that, uh, as I understand it, the um, that Cadbury's and the other chocolate makers in the UK began to use vegetable oil during and after the Second World War because it was available and uh, it was it was cheaper, and uh, and that wasn't considered to be acceptable as uh, as chocolate in uh, for, by the Belgians and by others uh, in in the EU. Uh, do you remember that debate, Nigel? Oh yes, I remember it very well. Indeed, uh, it's um, it, the the product they 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 wanted to brand uh, uh, British chocolate as Vegulate, which I think, <laughs> <laughs> which was actually quite accurate. And it it is it is a matter of whether it is indeed fair competition because I don't if you actually have one Belgian chocolate, which is uh, full of proper cocoa and everything. You only need to eat one of them. But actually, if you're if you're eating uh, British chocolate, which is now actually, to be strictly true, Cadbury's is now American, uh, you need to eat uh, quite a lot more chocolate to get a, a similar level of kick. Um, now, uh, the, 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 the other thing I do remember is the way this is a triumph of marketing over health, in that, do you remember... Cadbury's dairy milk, so full of milk it almost moves. And they actually boasted about the fact that it had more milk in it. And the fact that it had got so much more milk in it meant it had less cocoa, which meant it was cheaper to produce and less good for you. Yeah, a glass and a half in every uh, in every bar. <laughs> uh, no, yes. I, think I think you're referring to. Yeah. Yes. Well, if I can bring in David and Nigel, a, um, a belief in, in in the India of my childhood about uh, ice creams. Uh, the the big ice cream manufacturers were quality, and the word was that um, um, it wasn't uh, an ice cream they had. They had blotting paper. But even then, um, quality <laughs> ice creams uh, were very popular. Um, I think on that basis, you don't get quality ice cream. And might I say, on the question of chocolates and things like that, when they come into our house, Caroline makes sure it's in the basement. But I sometimes take it out um, and try and consume it, but I can't consume it in secret because my ability to keep anything secret is, um, is, is non-existent. But on that theme um, of, of um, uh, Easter eggs and chocolates, um, we shall bring this podcast to an end. Thank you for listening to us, David and Nigel. Uh, it's, been, it's been fun to be here, and um, you weren't going to mention your nickname again, and we don't want to hear that, so, um, <laughs> so keep, keep it to yourself. But, uh, but anyway, nice, nice to talk again, and uh, it's been great fun. Uh, I too have enjoyed it I immensely, and uh, I shall be soon uh, on the Newmarket Racecourse, where the jockeys are somewhere between seven and nine stone, and the idea of eating any chocolate or indeed hardly any food at all during a day would would seem absolutely fantastic. I remember the great jockey of yesteryear, Lester Piggott, survived on a, a cigar and a glass of champagne when he was riding. <laughs> Well, the glass of champagne is certainly to be recommended. Please do follow Susanna's example. Write to us. Our email is threeoldhacks at outlook.com. Happy Easter and plenty of Easter eggs.